0: Lightly literary podcast, the only book called podcast that wholeheartedly endorses losing one's virginity in a outdoor area, preferably a, a <laughs> nice park, maybe a grotto of some kind. Any mm-hmm. any quick recommendations on that front, Amanda?
1: anywhere where a nine-tailed fox could find me really
0: good omens yes if you can invite any kind of (laughs) symbolic creature of the woods into your first time making love then i think that just has good omens all around Mm -hmm. (laughs) bodes well Mm -hmm. bodes well for the future and i think that relationship as this book shows has held up so so far so good If you have no idea why we're talking about losing your virginity in that very specific manner, it is because this is a book club episode on the novel Burnt Shadows by Camilla Shamsie. We'll be discussing the first half of that book today, as is our book club episode, Want. We are, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. We're a book club podcast that puts out episodes every week. You can find our social media accounts on Instagram and on Facebook. Both of those are at the Lightly Literary Podcast, which is all one word, so nice and easy to find. Book Club Podcasts for us are spoiler-filled, kind of analytical episodes, and as I mentioned, today we'll be discussing the first half of Burnt Shadows, which is a kind of generation-spanning historical fiction novel covering a lot of topics that we'll get into today. Amanda, mm-hmm. you chose this book, and I honestly don't remember the prompt. You know I'm terrible at this segment. I never, no, I never remember. This <laughs> is definitely for you to remember, I guess. I'm putting the burden I on you. I put it in
1: the, the sheet, actually i've started oh did
0: you real oh there it is uh so the prompt i gave you yeah excellent well done i just don't read things (laughs) you know
1: (laughs) it's surprising (laughs) to hear
0: in a book club podcast but i just you know just not much of a reader really more of a you know anyway yes it was pick a book that should be considered a classic and so the whole point of that was that i you gave that prompt to me previously in the book clubs and so i gave it back to you and i think you chose by author or did you choose by book
1: um, I chose my book. Oh, okay. So you've read this book before? Uh, yes, I have. Gotcha. Um, okay. I actually, I, but it was like years ago because it was for grad school. Um, and I read mm-hmm. this book for my terrorism class. Um Which sounds scary, Ah. but it's a, a it was a class that focused on, like, how terrorism is depicted in literature, especially Mm -hmm. um, from, like, both sides of the equation, Um, and we studied a lot, especially given, um, like, with 9-11 and everything else that happened, and the aftermath of that, and, and, like, the changing of laws, and, Mm -hmm. and the changing of perception, and, and, the, the heightened fear that comes with, um, an attack like that. <clears throat> so, um, we read several books, uh, this one being one of them, um, in that class about that and how it f- kind of forms and like where it comes from and everything like that. And, uh, this book in particular stood out to me because I remember reading it and being just like in awe of how beautifully written it is mm-hmm. and and even though it was like a, a class where there was a lot of the other books were sometimes hard to get through just because it could be so um emotionally charged a lot of the time really graphic and there are in even some of it mm-hmm, like filled yeah. with a lot of hate speech and stuff um this one was just something that really stood out to me that i was just like oh my gosh it was like uh like a, a a a sense of relief almost of reading this book in that class.
0: Well, it's telling, I'm just going to go ahead and spoil a future segment here, but it's telling that in my one big bold prediction, which we always do with fiction, the first half of Mm -hmm. fiction, I leaned kind of in the terrorism direction, but then within the prediction I put, but oh no, there's no way the book will go there. That's just, for some reason I'm getting that vibe with some of the recent happenings in the story. So you mm-hmm. could read roughly half of this book and really have no clue that that's what the book is going to be about. <laughs> right, Cause right, it's Because yeah. I, I barely had an inkling and I just thought maybe I'll make that prediction. There are two in kind of the, I don't know, 150s or 40s page wise, there are two introductions that made me think, yeah, maybe this could head in that direction but anyway no certainties even Mm -hmm. yet um then again we have half the book to go so that does make sense okay and you're right so far it's it's really just a generation spanning i mean roughly speaking a romance story with some political backdrop some kind of like civilization defining moments in history and stuff so Mm -hmm. it's yeah it's definitely not a terrorism book yet or something right Excellent. Well, let's dig into the analysis. We'll get to our segments now. As I mentioned, we will be spoiling and discussing analytically the first half of this book. What was the chapter count? Was it one through f- 17?
1: One through, uh, we finished 18. So next. Gotcha. Uh, next. Next, we'll, we'll start on 19.
0: For, uh, perfect. And I am now certain that I did not read that chapter then. I did 17. <laughs> but that's fine. It's okay. That's fine. We okay, definitely have more works. than enough to discuss. And so that's, yeah, I realized that actually when I was filling out the, the planning doc. Anyway, let's dig into our first segment, which will just be a simple fill in the blank. You wrote the fill in the blank this week, Amanda. This is just a little warm up to get us talking about the story so far. Do you want to throw out the prompt that you made?
1: Sure. Um, if I were forced out of my country, rather... Uh, whether it was by memories of horrors like Hiroko, or actual banishment like Sajad, or feelings of otherness like Harry, I would probably find comfort living in blank. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. That I was trying to relate it back to the characters. So
0: it's a tough one. My my honest answer would have to be. I can, I can have my introverted moments I, and I think that for me it would have to be a country that's somewhat comfortable with English because I think I'm pretty bad with second languages or have been I really struggled with second languages growing up trying to study Spanish and stuff and so I think that would not be good for me if I if I wound up in a place that had zero use for English and it's just kind of like mm-hmm. well here you go buddy to tough shit you know figure out a new language I don't think that would be good for my for me so <laughs> socially emotionally I think that would just be a huge hurdle though you know do your best so i opted for and granted now english is kind of a one of the great global languages you know for better and worse the history of imperialism has made that certain so mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess I could live a lot of places. I, I opted for any Scandinavian country, maybe, because at least they have kind of a full winter. I also like the seasons, to be honest. I don't think I could just end up in some tropical place. Or, um, you know, I don't want to live in Siberia either. But I think, yeah, so it's Scandinavian country, maybe they also seem fairly stable. And politically, I would understand, you know, they have rough versions of democracy similar to what we have. So I feel like I could at least... I don't know, fit in societally. Um, Japan was Mm -hmm. the other place that came to mind. I have always been intrigued by the the northern island, Hokkaido, because it also has a pretty deep winter and... I don't know. I think climate. And I also it, Japan is an interesting place because I've always wanted to visit. And I'm intrigued by it. But I also know that I really get stressed out in mega cities. So like I could not mm. live in Tokyo and would not want to at all. And so that would stress me out to no end. But that's why I'm like, oh, you know, Hokkaido, there's some, you know, average sized cities up there. It's not quite as dense or intensely populated. I don't think I'd feel so overwhelmed. But yeah, those would be probably my quick options. The the language thing would be my biggest hope. Because if I, again, if I ended up in a place where it's like, you know, you, t- you know, you have zero use of English, figure it out. I think that would cause me immense stress.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, um, Language especially is, that's why I think um, <clears throat> uh, Hiroko is able to just like bounce around as much as she yeah, can because yeah. she's a polyglot. Like she can just like pick up anything really quickly. Yeah. Um, If only all of us could do that. (laughs) I know.
0: I know. What a talent.
1: (laughs) Um, For me, I said, um, just like the other um, characters in in the novel, I would choose a place where I have like some kind of connection, whether it's family connection, friends, or a familiarity with the culture. So I would probably go with Korea, just because I I have all of those aspects. Um, So that would be probably just the easiest for me to to kind of dive right in i've also lived Mm -hmm. there before so i would i would live in seoul um again just even though it's like a a ginormous city the the way that it's organized and stuff like you don't have to actually leave your neighborhood if you don't want to um Right, right so it's 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 a place that um i would find comfort um the other place that i would probably want to go to is like really anywhere in Europe just because I would want to be somewhere where I can walk and that's another thing about Seoul is you could like walk wherever you need to go you don't and, right, and you right. don't have to own a car they have great public transportation and the same with like Europe I you could yeah. basically walk everywhere so um as a as a secondary, I would probably choose some anywhere anywhere in Europe.
0: <laughs> totally, yeah, Europe too. When you pick anywhere there, you get the rest of Europe, at least a lot of it, since it's yeah. they've structured a lot of that to be easy to travel between and such. So that makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense too. And I think yeah, it's. It is nice to have at least some family, I guess, you could lean back on in this hypothetical scenario. Always good yeah. to have rich relatives who just own property in places, and you don't have to work. You can just live with your rich relatives. That's what I've learned from right? the story. <laughs> well, her, her love interest, Conrad, isn't that how he ended up in Nagasaki anyway? It's There was just yeah. some empty house. It's like, oh, I have a property there. Just go live there, yeah. I guess. <laughs> you know, you do love to see it. Can't say that's a common thing in my family, but, you know, it, it is nice. <laughs>
1: That would be amazing. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. Very convenient indeed. Let's get into talking about some of the details of the story so far. We'll move on to our surprises segment. This is when we're going to talk through some surprises that we found in the narrative thus far. They can be pleasant or otherwise, maybe unpleasant surprises. Amanda, why don't you start us off? I think, weirdly, we kind of have the same one. Though mine's maybe a little broader Ah. than yours because you. I know you've read this novel. My surprise was because I hadn't read it. And actually, I started this book... Without reading the back cover either, oh. but what was it, what was your
1: surprise? Um, mine was the the prologue. Um, so I did read this, but like I don't remember a lot of the finer points of the book. Uh, all I remember is um, that the main character was a Japanese woman,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: that she had married um, an Indian Muslim, and um, and that you know stuff happened. But I just remembered how beautifully written it was. Um, so that was all that i came to the book remembering and so when i read the prologue i was like oh oh wait what oh yeah i read this for my terrorism class like oh hmm okay but then i promptly forgot about it again when i was reading the rest of the book so and then like i didn't rediscover it again until i was going back and like filling out the doc and i was like oh yeah man the prologue uh (laughs) it should be affecting the way that i read but it just wasn't because i was so wrapped up in like the beauty of the language and like all the other aspects all the other motifs and the themes that are being explored in this book because it's a lot
0: Mm -hmm. um yeah
1: and and it's and that the the prologue just it kept slipping my mind
0: (laughs) well and it comes through anyone i'm a good test case test case for this because anyone who knows the time period it establishes and then it also Mm -hmm. it makes allusions to in the first chapter of the prologue, it it makes allusions to other bombs hey we heard about this other thing that happened in hiroshima what was that about oh i don't know like there's rumors floating and then of course if you have any idea you don't even have to know dates or something to know oh it's sometime after that huh in nagasaki okay, I mm-hmm. wonder if the story is going to do the thing. Because at, at that point in the story so early, I wasn't sure if then they were just going to leave before the bomb went off there or if maybe they would then be living in Nagasaki in the aftermath of it, trying to deal with the repercussions of it. I just didn't – the scope of and the focus of it surprised me a ton. That That's my surprise is that, firstly, I didn't know Burnt Shadows referred to the literal nuclear bomb um, – phenomenon uh, destruction where it does it doesn't it, it leaves some kind of it like disintegrates people this is a really grim thing to talk about but it does some effect yeah. to if you're close enough to the epicenter of it where it, it turns someone to ash or something isn't that what she was yeah. referring it's like it burns so hot that it leaves It somehow leaves the shadow imprint of the person or or something i know that's it's in the story that she thinks that happened to him right she she found a stone that maybe his shadow was burned so i just literally didn't know that was the title the title man that was my surprise it was just after finishing the first chapter in the prologue i just thought holy shit i had no idea that this was going to be about the nuclear bomb i just would never have guessed that
1: (laughs) i don't know why and it's and it's twofold as well because the the burns on her back as well. It's like a, a constant. It's a oh yeah. It's a shadow of a, it's a reminder. Something that she carries with her all the time too of, yeah. of the bombings. She so. thought
0: she she thought she would get out of traditionalist Japanese roles, and then she literally has a kimono symbol a burnt into her skin forever. So
1: exactly a pretty
0: devastating early image for sure yeah no I just and then of course so that chapter happens and I think holy shit I didn't know this novel was about the bombing in Japan Uh, and it's not because immediately she leaves (laughs) and then you know it's obviously it's in the the shadow of it in her life and the effect of obviously Conrad dying and everything it's it's overcast the whole novel but then of course immediately it's a book about British occupation of India and it's a completely Mm -hmm. different you know political focus so to speak it was just kind of like oh geez okay it's not about this in a direct way because I then i thought yeah maybe it'll be about you know hers trying to make a life and stay in japan and see what the post-imperial time is like there and and it's not about that
1: mm-hmm.
0: so that was my surprise just kind of the scope of it and the pacing early on and then also just some of the story decisions that i not reading the back cover could not have predicted or would not have yeah so surprising yeah, it's, stuff
1: it's, it's a lot of it and it's really well um portrayed and obviously the writer Camilla Shamsi she she knows her stuff like she she's actually from I think Pakistan isn't she she's a Pakistani writer
0: I don't know I thought she was British but then she obviously could be um an immigrant too
1: yeah she's from Karachi Pakistan gotcha she was born there in 73 okay <clears throat> um, so
0: she's not British by she isn't for some reason, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was published by some British publisher or something, Picador, no, it's I don't know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I don't know why she, I thought she was a British. I did not do my diligence and do the Wikipedia page search on her before this started. Nah.
1: But I should have. Yes. She studied and taught in, in the United States, so... Oh, okay. But, but yeah, she's um <clears throat> she's Pakistani by birth, so she, she knows, right. right, the history of that stuff, so... Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because
0: of the... Because the first, I would say, really in-depth part of the narrative is in India with British people and with um, Sajad too. And mm-hmm. so maybe that's why I assume she was British, because she immediately moves into kind of British voice or something. She has these, I don't know, rather... Uh, mannered uptight kind of british characters so i maybe part of my brain just said oh well this if you're going to write this way about the british you must be british but (laughs) it makes sense i guess that she's not Yeah. yeah let's move on to some motifs this is the maybe more analytical section of the pod where we dive into something a little deeper and start talking through some of the quotes and the writing and everything Amanda, why don't you start us off with your motif that you think matters so far in this story anything thematically jumping out to you
1: Oh, for sure, and and I actually, <laughs> when I originally read this book, I was like looking over my notes in the book. Um, I had chosen a completely different motif to study the first time, mm-hmm. um, to what I'm I'm looking at right now. But so the one that I'm looking at right now is um, the idea of nationalism and patriotism, especially as it <clears throat> relates to um, colonialism and imperialism, um, and and terrorism, and so. It seems like the examples that we see of, of, of patriotism and nationalism, it seems to lead to some really catastrophic consequences. So intense love for your country is good and pride for your country is good, except that it also leads to things like, uh, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, where, um, and I have a quote from, uh, the novel on page 183, um, Hiroko is thinking back on it, and she's remembering the Americans' reaction to that. And it says, In Tokyo 35 years ago, she had decided their snobbery was not of class, but of nation. The bomb saved American lives. End quote. Mm -hmm. So it's about the, 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 the mixed feelings she has about Americans. She's like, she admires them for a lot of things, but she also really hates them for their attitude about the tragedy that she had to go through that, that the Americans did to her and to her country um, and to her city. Um, And so that, that idea of like, well, American lives are more important because we're the greatest country of all time. And we saved American lives. That idea of like putting a country's citizens over the lives of other innocents that don't live in that country. That is an idea of like how patriotism can kind of go awry in mm-hmm. some ways. Well, it's an excuse-making
0: um, device. It's it's built right exactly. into the concept. <laughs> it's those exactly. things are, you can't you can't really extract one from the other.
1: Mhm. Um and then another example is um England's occupation of Indi- India, um especially as the British did not try to adapt to um India's culture instead trying to force their own culture onto um, the citizens of this foreign country, mm-hmm. um, and so we can see that a lot with like James Burton. One of his major roles in this novel is just to be the symbol of imperialist England in India, mm-hmm. um, right? And all of his interactions are just they just showcase how he thinks he's superior in so many ways, but he's he doesn't see it that way. He just accepts. It, as it is and is like why 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 doesn't everybody just absolutely love us why are you guys like fighting against being more british <laughs> and yeah stuff.
0: and even sajad yeah. is susceptible to it there's a scene i didn't pull quotes for this obviously it's as it's your motif but there's a scene where sajad finally pushes back on him and argues with him about some things about india's yeah. occupation about their attitudes and the mm-hmm. things that james says he can't really James is obviously trying to be very level-headed or seem very reasonable and logical and sensible. He talks about you know the dangers of violence and mob mentality. I forget what the quotes are, but it's and even then, sajad has a hard time like fully arguing to it. He's not he can't quite commit to fully disagreeing with him. That's what of course makes him such a James makes him such like a powerful kind of you know if you want to say like evil force or corrupt, I don't know corrupting force or something. It's it's that he's not totally unreasonable or something, but also it's. I don't know. Yeah, he's he is a strange influence, obviously, in the book.
1: Yeah, it's they're they're all anybody who's not British is immediately put into like a servant's class. They cannot be seen as equals, um, which does uh you know really harms the idea of like their um, India's national pride, right? Like they they don't have it, or they are struggling to build that when they're also mm-hmm. being treated as though they are inferior, and even Ilsa Elizabeth. Um, Burton. She's, she's just as guilty of doing that. Um, and I pulled a quote from page 84. Elizabeth was feeling something that was almost sorrow to think the descendants of the English would not come to the churches and monuments of British India seven centuries from now and say this is a reminder of when my family history and India's history entered the same stream irrevocably and forever. So this is pretty telling of the mentality in that um, Elizabeth she she loves India for a lot of reasons. She thinks that it's beautiful. It's, mm-hmm. There's a lot of like um, memories there, especially of her child. Um, but at the same time, as as sentimental as she is about it, she calls it British India. That's pretty telling, of course. And yeah. also, <laughs> yeah, and the the melding of the two um cultures of of british culture and of indian culture she doesn't see it necessarily as them being equal it's it's more of like they should be blended but with the british side being the the dominant one um irrevocably and forever so that there is no distinct indian culture anymore
0: right it's um, it is telling yeah. that both elizabeth and then her son they're the most like identity-wise, culturally adrift. And when she, when her marriage falls apart, where does she go to reinvent herself and become a new person? You guessed it, America, the land of reinvention mm-hmm. and and always progressing, right? Never staying still. And then, what does her son, you know, what citizenship does he end up accepting? He torn between India, torn between Britain, doesn't know who he wants to be, doesn't know what he loves he ends up in the cia in america (laughs) and so yeah it's america so far has a strange role in the story too because it's debatably one of the most influential forces pulling things but also it's not made an appearance yet in the story except i mean the bomb is obviously a very brutal direct force but it's it's not an american point of view so
1: yep um and then moving on very very quickly, there's uh, the formation of the Pakistan um of, of Pakistan amidst the riots that resulted in, in lots of murders where you yeah. have like um the Hindu community versus the Muslim community and instead of just like living in harmony together, which they had done before British imperialism, um, they have to divide themselves after the British leave and and that destruction that that happens, um there because they have pride in their own like faith and their own identities like now it's like surging forward because the british aren't there to tamp it back down again um so there's that negative um consequence there's also with um with the formation of of pakistan and and as a new country they are still uh the country still creating its own identity and creating a sense of pride within its citizens um there is a quote from page 185 That says, Islamization was a word everyone recognized as a political tool of a dictator, and yet they still allowed their lives to be changed by it. She didn't worry for herself, but Raza was still so unformed that it troubled her to think what the confusion of a still-forming nation might do to him. So there's a warning there that, like, these new nations, if you politicize a religion like that, uh, which, you know, we can arguably see also in in some groups in america where the christianity is politicized as well um there's a lot of violence that's associated with that and then in a lot of rules regulations laws eventually that uh stifle certain freedoms so um Mm -hmm. there's another that's another example of of the negative effect of, of nationalism or or patriotism and uh the final one that i have is um proxy wars um yeah yeah (laughs) harry is part of the cia and he's part of the supply chain for weaponizing afghanistan against russia and he does express some misgivings about what he's doing um but ultimately he just like goes with it because um of this quote from page 181 he says um At the very root of Harry's determination to join the CIA at the height of the Cold War was the terror of nuclear war, the threat of which could only be eliminated by conclusively ending the battle between America and Russia. So there's some like hubris kind of going on there, where like the only way Mm -hmm. we can get rid of, of nuclear threat is to end the war between these two big countries. It's like, there's, I mean, there are other ways that, you know, just because America and Russia stop fighting doesn't mean that all of a sudden there's not going to be nuclear threat from other countries. Like that's just ridiculous. However, because of his fierce pride in being an American and, and calling America his home and kind of like proving his, his patriotism and his love for his adopted country. It's like he, he has to fall into these, um, he has these ideals that he has to embrace fully, um, in order to show that he is an American patriot. Um, so, like the idea of communism versus democracy here, it's it's almost like that also is based on your patriotic feeling, rather than any mm-hmm. like real philosophical thought that you have. So. Mm-hmm. Which then leads to more wars, more proxy wars, more deaths, and and other negative consequences. How do do you read
0: Sujad in that sense in the story then? Because he maybe started the novel as the most patriotic character other than James. Though James, it's almost... I don't know. It's all very demure with the British. You can't really tell how much he cares. He's just invested in his lifestyle, and like right. he obviously has his arguments about Britain's influence. But who I, who knows what he really believes, or something, or to the extent of it. He just seems like he wants to lead a gentleman's lifestyle more than anything else. You know. I don't, I don't know right. if he's going to put his life on the line for the Queen, so to speak. But right. so and so, Sujad was, of course, the most passionate about living in Delhi. I think that that is what Dilly refers to. He, they just have a different pronunciation. Is that right, or is Dilly a place I just don't know about?
1: I was, I thought that Dilly was like a, because remember, there's the scene where he's riding his bicycle and he's looking up at the sky and trying to see where the demarcation is between gotcha. Delhi. And Delhi, gotcha. So I thought of of Delhi as either like a a suburb of Delhi, Makes or sense. as like a neighborhood next to Delhi. Yeah,
0: yeah. They they intertwine them or inter uh, exchange yeah. those enough to that I just kind of conflated. But th- I think that's right. They're a different neighborhood or section or something. But he's yeah. the most passionate. He's the obviously the most devastated when he's forced to move to um, Pakistan and everything. So it's how do you read him then? Because it's there was a quote recently in the new one of the newer or later chapters about he's speaking really effusively about karachi where they had to relocate and they make mm-hmm. it or i think it's harry makes a joke about i thought you know i thought dilly was your whole entity i thought it was your whole person right your poetic soul and he kind of just remarks like well that that will always be that case but i've you know i've moved on or i believe he calls it a, the pakistani resignation he's just sort of resigned yeah. to live somewhere else so how do you interpret his character then do you find him to be a nationalist of some kind
1: his was pride in specifically his, his culture, his history, mm-hmm. his personal history, more so than just like the idea of being, um, of coming from a location, India. His was related to family specifically. And so I think that his loyalties was always to family more so than to country. Or to uh, his personal, uh, his personal identity is his family, which is why with Hiroko and with Raza, everything, his whole pride is his son. He keeps calling him my prince. His whole source of pride is his his wife as well. So I think, I think he escapes that um, idea of like patriotism and and nationalism because he is a family man. He is the Mm -hmm. family
0: yeah, that makes sense. And it's their relationship obviously started with such an intensity and unexpected because he was supposed to have an arranged marriage and it wasn't working out. So, yeah, that's he's he's an interesting one too because of how traditional he is in that sense of admiring his culture's past and kind of adhering to its history or or really loving it, trying to embrace it, but then also doing extremely aggressively non-traditional things (laughs) like marrying a foreigner Mm -hmm. and then moving to a new place. (laughs) I mean, being forced to move. He didn't want to go, but, and just being, you know, willing to uproot his life and everything. So, yeah, my motif is similar, but I have just phrased it in a different way. And now you having started the podcast by talking about, the terrorism lens it, again i made a prediction related to it but now of course i'm seeing the novel in all these ways and thinking yeah i can <laughs> totally see how this novel is building to that or how it's going to end up in that conflict or something but anyway mm-hmm. my motif is i i said the unexplored sins of the west but i gotta rephrase this maybe I don't mean unexplored like fiction or culture has not explored things like the nuclear bombs or invasions or colonialism or very because it has. I just mean that the perspective of this book is not Western or it's the characters aren't. And so it's it's just doing it. It's it's the underside of the rock or something. I'm, for, I'm not sure what mm-hmm. the metaphors I'm going for, but it's it's just presenting a point of view that is not Western Um Though the voice in the writing, debatably, is. But anyway, it in English after all. But And so it's exploring the sins of those and kind of the rippling after effects of those things. It's also clear it's going multi-generational at this point. So it's really going to do a long-tail exploration of the of certain tragedies and horrible events and deeds. And then it's going to see how those things ripple throughout history. Um, it starts pretty early with this, obviously. And there there's kind of a... Especially for Hiroko, who we haven't talked about as much as other characters so far. Maybe, even though she is the main character, mm-hmm. wouldn't you say? <laughs> I yeah, mean, she, right? Yeah. So, anyway, um, on page 16, it, there is a quick influence. She is, of course, attempting to be a modern woman in a very traditional Japan that was the Imperial Japan societally. Anyway, the structure of it was was quite traditional, especially with gender roles and such. But on page 16, it talks about she's thinking, it says, this is not how she imagined 21. She has to like work in a factory making bombs or something. Instead, she, imag- she imagined Tokyo, Hiroko Tanaka in the big city, wearing dresses, leaving lipstick marks on wine glasses and jazz clubs, her haircut just below the ear, single-handedly resurrecting the lifestyle of the modern girl of the 20s whose spirit had lived it on in Sartura through the thirties. I'm not sure what that is, I mispronounced that word, I'm sure. And then but that was childish <laughs> dreaming or borrowed dreaming really. She saw the way her mother sighed and laughed or the stories of modern girls, and she imagined their world as the only mode of escape from a dutiful life. So it's she has the biggest sense of wanting to escape those are clearly Western influences in the culture, in the music, in the, the way women dressed. It's, it's roaring 20s visions, right? Smoking cigarettes mm-hmm. and drinking wine at jazz clubs and everything. And in the same chapter, then, maybe part of what makes the first uh, section so brutal is, of course, then the West comes in in a horrific way and drops the atomic bomb where she lives. And so we get a scene like on page... 28 it talks about how the kimono fell off her shoulders but it does not touch the ground something keeps it attached to her how strange she thinks as she idly knots the sleeves of the kimono around her body just below her breasts she walks out the window of which she tried to catch a glimpse of conrad as he walked away and looks down the slope searching for clues houses trees people gathering outside asking each other questions people shaking their heads and sniffing the air and then later on the page, so much for her to learn. The touch of dead flesh, the smell. She has just located where the acrid smell comes from of dead flesh, the sound of fire. Who knew fire roared so angrily, angrily, and ran so quickly? It is running up the slopes now. Soon it will catch her. Just not not just her back, but all of um, but all of her will be Urakami Valley, diamond from carbon. She briefly imagines herself a diamond, all of Nagasaki a diamond, cutting open the earth, falling through to hell. So it's, you get this hell imagery, demonic burning, apocalyptic imagery too, and it's in the same section, basically the same chapter, Mm -hmm. which I think her character starting the book off in that way, kind of having these desires, maybe not wanting to live in Japan or be part of the... I don't know societal structure she obviously wants to marry a foreigner she she's kind of in love with Conrad and that's definitely non-traditional he's you know she's suspected throughout town people don't like her Her father was a freewheeling artist right isn't that wasn't that his vibe just kind of not not a total imperialist right wasn't on board with the nationalist sentiment and but then immediately, of course, America intervenes and de- destroys her life, basically, uh, at least for mm-hmm. for a time. So I thought that was one of the themes that popped right away. And I know rem- I remember you said that scene struck you on even on a rereading.
1: Yeah, it did. And And I was just thinking, too, while you were reading your quotes, like, man in, in both <clears throat> in both Nagasaki and in Karachi, there's the the Western influence of, of modernity. So we have Nagasaki with the, the promise of like oh the modern woman means not a dutiful woman. It means escape from from mm-hmm. the duties of, of your life there. And then um, Raza's whole obsession in Karachi in Pakistan is to he's obsessed with like Western electronics, Western yes. media. Right. Right. And so the, the, it's almost, and, and, and I find it interesting too compared to the British um, chapters uh, in that they also, um, in with imperialism, they were trying to assert their own culture over Indian culture. Right. And so they, they were introduced cricket and, and other things. Yeah. <clears throat> and so like the, the first line of attack is like, cultural inundation and making it seem cool and then there's like the the physical meddling part which would be like when and when india actually like um was occupied for by by england and then also um for nagasaki the actual bombings the the mm-hmm. american influence there and, and then america stationing themselves there um and then in uh pakistan we have yet to see in the novel but we can kind of see historically what's going to happen next so
0: (laughs) yeah yeah and you see it so the other places this motif shows up there's so many obvious ones that this is i guess why i chose it but much of the second section is about britain's you know occupation of india the effects of that british opinions about what that project was for and why they were doing Mm -hmm. it and then of course the part the rush to partition part of the kind of mistake or sin of that being, so the American sin initially is, a, is literal destruction and killing and the after effects yeah. of something they couldn't even fully understand when they did it. Then, of course, the British one is qu- kind of just rushing to get this shameful time behind them in a way, trying to, in their own yeah. mannered way, lead this all in the past. Oh, wasn't that wasn't that quite a, a time we had in India? Okay, you know, we're moving, yeah. at the empire's shrinking, let's close it up and, you know, get out of there. And then there's also... You can just tell in their attitudes, and again, maybe this is why I thought Shamsi was British or something, because of a paragraph like this on 109, this is about Elizabeth and James. There was no one moment at which things went wrong, just a steady accumulation of hurt and misunderstanding. There are arguments about how to raise Henry, about James's professional life, about Elizabeth's manner of inhabiting the social role of Mrs. Burton, about the food she served at parties, about when to leave for Missouri, about whether or not to send Henry to boarding school, about how far from the boundary wall to put, plant a certain tree, and all of these could have been minor arguments but weren't. Time moved them apart from each other. That was the best expl- explanation Sejad had. So that's his perspective on their relationship and in a strange way what's the word where well, when a small thing represents the whole thing <laughs> anyway mm-hmm, yeah. it, it's kind of like that for Britain in India though there were massive obviously um, humanitarian crises that they did there and, and th- there were awful incidents for sure but it was a slower it was not atomic bomb level c- catastrophic event it was a slow right. accumulation of misdeeds and colonialism is often that way it's sort of you go in with these high, grand expectations and intentions to bring civilization, which we now know is a pretty rotten project at its core, and then you, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you slowly accumulate horrible things, and and in the end you turn and look back at your legacy in the wake of it, and you think well, that was a real nightmare that we perpetrated. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, that obviously that paragraph was about their relationship and how he views it, but in a sense it could also be kind of how the novel feels about, especially from James's perspective, how it feels about this failed mission, this influence of Britain, and just kind of... It's uh, one thing on its own wouldn't jump out, and this is, you know, maybe how the manners can help cover things up, too, about how it's, well, there's no one horrifying thing that happened here. There's no, you know, mm-hmm. oh, that was just a misunderstanding. Oh, that was a, you know, we just didn't do that as properly as we should have or something. But then, of course, yeah, it's just an accumulative thing. Right. So I thought that was another. I even thought of that. Yeah, a strong quote to represent that, and you know, like you said, Shamsy writes the relationship so clearly and so well that it's another. It's just a strong paragraph about the dissolution of their marriage, I suppose. Yeah. How did how do you feel the British come (laughs) off in that section?
1: Uh, they were they didn't come off great. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think that um, Shamsy did a good job of seeing like. Are of really showing the injustices and in the in the attitudes specifically of the British toward um, toward the people who actually are from and lived in India their entire lives and and the fear too Ilsa who is who is German right um, mm-hmm. but adopts England um, for her husband but um, even she has um like notes of imperialism there, especially in regards to her son. So as soon as Henry starts to quote go native, then she's like, Alright, you're going off to England. You can't right. you can't be one of these. You have yeah. to be. Yeah.
0: And I think isn't that the now it's I didn't pull this quote again, but it that's hitting my memory. Isn't that when Sajad first really argues with him? Is that what it yeah. was about when he says something yeah. about, you know, why is why wasn't it good enough here? Or why mm. couldn't he be an Indian? Why did he have to right. go and be British? Yep. And as it turns out, he's an American Again, the, mel- the old fallback <laughs> Melting pot for, for indecisive Identities, I guess <laughs> yep. For, you know, people who feel Out of place, America is always A place you can go and reinvent yourself And work for the CIA, so you know these things is yeah, how they I go. Yeah, I mean, who
1: doesn't want to work for the CIA?
0: Yeah, geez. Well, I, on one sixty-four and sixty-five, last place I'll touch on this motif because it's this is where my prediction came from. That I thought, oh, they're going to do some more kind of Western. I know Russia isn't always g- grouped into the West, quote unquote. It's kind of an kind of an odd entity in that and um language or something in that tradition mm-hmm. but for our purposes we can because it's they're obviously invading afghanistan in the in the book and that's bleeding over and refugees are showing up in karachi and stuff and it says on 165 um this is from henry cia agent's point of view a certain freedom also in being known to no one though of course every pakistani assumed that all americans in their country were cia operatives harry looked at Shahjad who had now t- um Two blue polythene bags dangling off his wrists, fish squashed inside the packaging, one glassy eye pressed against the thin blue material, reminding Harry of an early winter frost in a garden pond with fish frozen beneath a skin of ice. He wondered if the reason that none of the Ashrafs had asked him any details about his business and his consular officer at the embassy was that they suspected it was a CIA cover. Absurdly, it bothered him to think he might be suspected of lying by the family with whom he had spent part of the last three weekends. He was already beginning to regret the spring thaw in Afghanistan when things would pick up pace in America's proxy war and there would be few opportunities for casual leave. And then on the previous page, they had also talked about how as it turns out, a lot of Sajad's family were either directly killed by the partition riots and conflicts or they were killed or certainly dislocated because of the aftermath of it. There's some grim reference to one of his brothers, wives, and children dying on a train car. Do you know what that refers to? I didn't know the historical no. event that that talked about. Or yeah, that, I, that know, I didn't to. know
1: either but I was like man that t- that's terrible the th- what do they call it the death train Yeah it says it War? was
0: one of the yeah. ones that arrived with the dead as their cargo which is the the way he yeah. alludes to it makes it sound like it's a common like a common knowledge you should know what this refers to Yeah It would be like in World War 2 saying the camps like you would know that means concentration it's right. he references it with that sort of shared knowledge and yeah I just didn't know what that referred to so but anyway, and so there is that those moments of well, the partition. It was a rushed, bungled ev- effort by the British to sort of make amends and be sensible and logical about this whole thing. Let's leave this country, but it's we've got this figured out. We can just separate these people. It'll be totally fine. We've got reasonable border line, you know, borders drawn up. This will this makes a lot of sense. Everyone gets their own nation, and then of course it's you know really horrific aftermath and yeah. bungled. And then yeah, there's this now looming threat of Russian influences in afghanistan then america rushes to that and there's going to be i know you talked about this one well the nationalism stuff but there's going to be some kind of proxy war there so it's yeah it's just kind of this underbelly novel exploring these different western influences but again from a, a entirely different perspective more of a the receiving end of things or sort of hidden right perspective Cool. Any other thoughts on motifs that you've noticed? There are tons we didn't touch on, of course. Language is a common one, could have been chosen. Mm-hmm. Even love, because everyone in the story is in some kind of romance, you know? Yep. Even birds Raza. is
1: another one. With himself. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, uh, birds. Yeah, that's true, yeah. I didn't think of
0: birds. I didn't... Hit, hit me with something was there some kind of symbolic moment with it well obviously except for she has the burn uh burn marks on her the kimono birds but is there yeah. so, was there another moment in the garden maybe when they had sex the, um
1: there's actually she she keeps being compared to different types of birds
0: oh okay
1: mm-hmm.
0: that makes sense yeah. I mean, she's flying her all around. I do wonder. I do wonder if the novel is going to stick with her all the way. We'll get to that prediction, like I said, um, in a second. But yeah, I do wonder if it'll continue with her. If it's going to pass the story off to someone else, but if she ends up living in America, then yeah, she really is a true the migrant bird of the story then, because <laughs> she's yeah, she'll have popped over all over the place. Um, let's talk about some, please continue, make it stops though. I think this will be a pretty skewed segment for both of us today. This is a (laughs) uh, ending segment for the book club part ones where we talk about something in the story stylistically or otherwise that we want to continue when we want to make stop. Why don't you go first with either though? I think we both had a hard time with the make it stop.
1: Yeah, I'll just go ahead with my make it stop. Um, I really struggled with it because I I do love this novel so much. Mm -hmm. Um, so I just chose like something that I thought, Uh, Okay, this could be it. Um, It doesn't actually bother me. Um, I'm just kind of right now struggling to really think of anything about this novel that's negative. But Harry's daughter, Kim, is kind of a mystery to me in that I'm not exactly sure why she's included in the novel yet. I have a feeling she'll show up again. Um, But she's just kind of portrayed as a typical teen in the midst of her rebellion. There's not a great deal of depth to her at the moment. And she's just kind of like air dropped in maybe to give harry some more character depth i'm not sure um but I, I feel like she's gonna show up again in some way it's just that right now it's like okay we know now harry has a daughter um a product of his previous marriage and mm-hmm. that he does not have a great relationship with her but and that she's in you know a teenager and she's rebelling Right. And she's got a rat tail. Like that's that's. I've got to be honest. I don't know if that's
0: a I don't know if that's a chapter 18 thing. I don't remember her at all. And maybe I just speed read the last chapter or <laughs> I don't even I kind of remember vague references to his family, but I don't even remember them talking about Kim. So yeah, <laughs> I completely agree. Yeah, she was
1: chapter 17. Yeah, she oh, okay. Was. <laughs> yeah, I think I just
0: speed read maybe too much and just missed some of her descriptions or introductions. So it's, yeah. you know, it's generation spanning and it's an ambitious scope of work. So I think I'm just enraptured by the characters that it's spending lots of time with. Or I guess there's enough happening and enough to try and remember and keep track of and, and kind of think about that. Uh, yeah, that didn't even register with me. So that's a good one. I'll throw my make it stop out there as... Because I don't really have one either. I think it's an odd story so far because it's it's obviously generated a great discussion. I'm having a wonderful time thinking about the book. I'm finding the reading of it to be it's it's weirdly so competently done. It's also not shaking my I don't know not shaking my literary brain or my emotive brain. It's challenging to read but also feels accessible. I just I think back to some of the stuff we read like Native Speaker Toni Morrison that felt maybe more experimental or challenging in some way and i think that just activates a different part of my reading brain this is both very well done and very thoughtful and careful and smart but i don't know i'm finding it's a kind of a passive read i i'm having a hard time obviously articulating it now but it's I don't know. It's not really a make it stop as much as just a reaction, because I think when you texted me, when we were chatting briefly about how do you like the book so far, it's strange, because I'm like, it's it's just very good, but the reading experience, when I read it, I don't I'm not like blown away, I guess it just feels so competent or something. It's very, it's almost maybe too smooth or I I don't know. It's I'm uh, damning it with praise or something now, but it's, I don't know. Yeah. It's it's been a strange thing. It's not like rocking me again. I think back to like the Toni Morrison book club we did, which really like that'll grab you by the shoulders and kind of shake you. And this one is just a much more... Maybe that's, again, why I feel like it's British. It does feel just more a touch more reserved with its characters' observations. It feels their relationships are so well articulated and smoothly rolled out that it's... Even with Raza, who you can see some simmering issues and some boiling rage and stuff. Even that doesn't feel... There isn't a shock to it, right? The most shocking Mm -hmm. part of this book, for sure, is the opening scene with the bomb. And then since then, it's been a pretty... Relationship-heavy, kind of thoughtful-paced thing. So I don't know, but I don't want it to stop. I guess I just wanted to point out that when you texted me, I think my response was like, "Yeah, it's good," even though I can say objectively the writing is is pretty excellent and it's a great, it's just a great novel so far. But it is not kind of like rocking my world, and not every book should. This is just a really great novel, so. Yeah. Yeah, but that's I, I I'm not even sure what the make it stop would be there. That's just my reaction to it. It's because I don't really have one. It's every you know every character moment, every sentence that has that opts for description. Maybe she relies on repetition a little much. I know one of the paragraphs I read. She does like to do the the opening of the sentence repetition sometimes, and I think she allows herself those moments to lean in and really dive into some images and things, and maybe that. Maybe she relies on that a little too much, but it's not bothersome. And it's definitely not mm-hmm. to the point of it's not making her style. Just, she doesn't have a hampered or hampering style or something. So, But yeah, are you finding the moment-to-moment reading to be easy? Is it challenging? Do you reread a lot?
1: I don't. I, I, it's, it's a very easy read, and it's engaging. It's very engaging for mm-hmm. me. I, I'm, I want to see what's happening next. Even though I've read this before, I'm still like, oh. This is great. And I just yeah. love her writing style. So I I, I I, can see what you mean about it not being sometimes with like experimental works where an author is like still kind of it, like with Native Speaker and with um, the Toni Morrison one, The Bluest Eye that we read, they're both the first novels as well. I, um, that is true. So they're still kind of finding their their authorial voice there. But this one just mm-hmm. seems like it she just knows herself as a writer and everything is just like really smoothly done. So. Yeah.
0: There's got to be some literary theory terminology we could throw in here, you know, if we were the if we were the graduate school pod, we'd have there'd be a term we could use <laughs> for this. But it is a strange thing though when the writing is so it's ornate but you don't notice it. So it's kind of it's mm-hmm. not like a gaudy beauty that forces you to stare upon it, but it is it's very beautifully written but it's also not it's just subtle enough for the, or the word choice, the diction of it, the tone, none of it feels abrasive either. Like it's the things mm-hmm. that she's going for to kind of um, to kind of rattle the author or the author, the readers don't feel like it, it feels like she doesn't have to go out of her way to include really, I don't know, intense moments or something. It's just, it is all just a little reserved, but it's, I don't know, quite well done too. So it's yeah. I don't know, though, again, I don't want any of the style to change or stop or anything. I guess I'll throw out I've, I've you know, danced around it. I guess I'll throw out the repetition stuff, I, I suppose. But I don't know. <laughs> I think it's I, I yeah. Anyway, I'm curious. Um, what was your please continue then?
1: Uh, the Descriptive Language, this is a beautifully written novel, um, and I have mm-hmm. an example of The Descriptive Language, which is from um, the first chapter, the second paragraph, it says, um, Conrad cannot see the chimneys themselves from his home in Mina- Miyamate, but for months now, his thoughts have frequently wandered to the factory where Hiroko Tanaka spends her days measuring the thickness of steel with micrometers, images of classrooms swooping into her thoughts the way memories of flight might enter the minds of broken-winged birds. That morning, though, as Conrad slides open the doors that form the front and back of his small wooden caretaker's house and looks in the direction of the smoke, he makes no attempt to imagine the scene unfolding warily on the factory floor. Anyway, the rest of the paragraph goes on to um, kind of to describe the scenery there, and it's just really beautiful. Yeah,
0: no, totally, and it's I the, it does come in the novel with such an intense, memorable prologue slash just the entire part in Japan that I don't know if any of the rest of it has quote-unquote lived up to that moment, but I think I was just reading it in a heightened way, and she allowed herself a little bit more intensity, because the situation demanded it, obviously, the the graphic nature of the event And just, yeah, but there were other Scenes that felt so well described, there's some uh, Moments when they're in India And they go they go visit some gardens And there's also the scene, what about um, We're coming off of, at least I recently edited And we put up the, you can't keep a good Woman down parts, how did you find The, the sex scene? We just don't come <clears throat> upon Them that often in the podcast We've got to latch onto the ones we get <laughs> I thought it was another one that was That was actually a case where the repetition I thought was kind of, maybe it went on a little too heavy handedly, or something. Do you remember that scene when it's kind of it I sort do. of like by the one of the characters is wondering where they are, and it's kind of like by the 15th time he wondered by the eighth? And I just it, it wasn't a great style moment for me, but anyway, how did you read that scene? Did you enjoy it?
1: Um, I did. I thought that the because it, it's not like it was graphic Mm-mm. in any way, mm-hmm. um, but you knew exactly like what was happening with each iteration that she included there. Yeah, um, yeah. And it also shows that it was like, you know, it wasn't just, you know, two seconds and done. It was, you know, a nice process for the both of them. And, there's uh,
0: there's a great line in there where it says Hiroko, I forget which time she, they're thought of or whatever, it's later, but it says She's, she feels a lot of pain and wonders if he knows what he's doing or something yeah. like that and I was like okay <laughs> yeah. yeah it was it's it's observational but also feels kind of light in the descriptive sense at times I guess it's she also does dialogue so well and it's and it does keep the narrative moving and everything too so it's she she takes detours to set things up and kind of establishes background and sets a scene well but I think the dialogue does shine through too okay my please continue though I, my make it stop was (laughs) really noncommittal, but I did put a please continue (laughs) that actually, if you'd have asked me this, maybe halfway through part one or the first half, I would have said this was my make it stop. But now I'm just in Uh, the time jumps. I'm in, I'm in now. I think the first couple of times Obviously, there's different sections, which are just different, entirely different decades. So it's, you know, we meet Hiroko and his job when they fall in love and get married, and then they're 60 years old. So it's that it makes sense to me because it's so massive that it's clear that she just wants to write about a completely different stage of life, a completely different emotional time, a relationship. Time, I don't yeah, like it's that project makes sense to me. But even within the sections though, there are weeks. I mean, for example, in the most recent one, we see Raza fail his exam and then all of a sudden he's failed it again and it's been weeks since the second time, which was I think supposed to be like a, a couple months. So there's the, there yeah. are these moments when she's taking liberties to move the the story ahead. At this point, though, I'm totally on board because it became obvious, especially when they went to the Pakistan section, that this was going to be multi-generational, that her aspirations for kind of the themes and the ideas were not just about just not just about Britain in India. It's going to be way more vast, which kind of played into the motifs that both of us chose, I think, because it could yeah. it could have just been a novel about America and Japan and what the relationship was like after the nuclear bombing. But this is going global. It's going big point of view huge span, true novel size, true ambition in that sense, in that kind of grandiose sense of the novel. And so I think I'm just on board now. It it did take a time. There was a time when it was off-putting to me, but as soon as I locked in and understood that she could probably pull this off and kind of weave some coherent ideas and themes through it all, I think now I'm excited about it.
1: Yeah, the, the scope of the, the novel would be daunting for, I think, a lot of writers. But she does it so wonderfully and she organizes it so well. I think because she carefully chose her motifs and her themes that it's it's not disjointing to read.
0: Yeah, yeah. In, even after chapter one, if you would have asked me to predict, you know, what is this a novel about? I There's no way I could have predicted a couple of the... You know, its thematic interests and even just the plot of it and the time it would take up and everything. But, you know, I think now it's for the better. I'm, I'm now it's almost the thing I'm most curious about. Like, who does the story end with? Which character? Is it going to be Raza's kids, even? Like, it could be, you know, it could be Raza's son or daughter or something. Like, it, it, who knows what the scope of it will be by the end, which is also why I mentioned earlier, alluded to it. I, I would not be surprised if the story obviously does not end with Hiroko or Sajad. I'm assuming they'll both die at some point in the story. Story just because time moves on and there'll be sort of remnants of the past for us to think about. Kind of a legacy impact. So that would not shock me. Anyway let's move. We've danced around this a ton, or at least I have. I spoiled it right off the top in this episode, but we do like to end part one book clubs about fiction with one big, bold prediction. So this could be any aspect of the story. We feel confident just making a little bit of a, a light prediction about some kind of expectation we have for the story. You're in an odd place, though, because you chose a book that you've already finished, <laughs> and, yeah. and you came in hot right away, spoiling the terrorist aspect of the story, which is not even explicit yet, but is very Sorry, much guys. on the forefront <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's okay though. That's we're just going to tag you in. We'll call that foreshadowing. You sort of did a tag team foreshadowing there, so I, I admire okay. it. I respect it. But do you want to give your <laughs> prediction first, if you can? Maybe a thematic sure. or stylistic one, or you know, just spoil the end, and you know that'll be what
1: it is. <laughs> I will not spoil the end because I don't remember it. Um, yeah, fair. But um, I, I, I'm going to predict because of Raza's interaction with the Afghan boy with the Hazara. Yeah. Right? Did I say that right, Hazara? With the I think the it's boy Hazara. with
0: the truck. He's got the dead yeah. Russian on the truck, of course. <laughs> Cuz I never yeah. remember names. So instead, he'll be dead Russian truck boy to me now. That's his official name in my brain because I yeah, my brain has such a hard time remembering names.
1: Yes. Um I think that well Hazara is the um um the the tribal group, right? I'm remembering that from uh, Kite Runner. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, cause he identified himself as Hazara, but yeah, it's um, clear
0: that he's vetting him when they meet, he's trying to quiz yeah. cause he's obviously lying to them for some, I don't think the story explained that very well. He just has some kind of, you know, innate troublesome or sort of, he's just doing something a little trouble, troubled or, you know, I don't know, wants to test his luck with lying. Uh, yeah. like you say, he's, he has some kind of hubris maybe, but no, it's, it's clear that he's just being vetted or the kid doesn't believe him. He questions how well he speaks the language and everything. So, yeah anyway sorry yeah
1: he even says like you you sound like a right you Pakistani rather than yeah um, so my prediction is that Raza is going to somehow uh, become enmeshed and entangled with the Afghan refugees and he's gonna end up doing something or he's gonna be either a witness to or a part of something violent that mm-hmm. occurs yeah. um, specifically with the with the um, with afghanistan or the afghan refugees definitely and it's gonna be because of his hubris like because right. he he craves that looking up to him and stuff like that
0: yeah he's in a fascinating position the novel has established yeah. him so well he's just you know he's one of those sweet boys but who's got an inner rage and now that he is he obviously he has the the burden of immigrant parent expectations which are often quite intense and can be quite serious and you know in this case you know dad's expectation he didn't live up to that he is dealing with recent failure and so he he has kind of that teenage under the under the surface hint of disillusionment with the world maybe a type of hatred that could be formed out of that or a certain passion it's it's just it's going a little beyond angst or something also the mm-hmm. fact that he you know goes out of his way to withhold things from his parents and didn't lie about the exams but obviously knew what had happened but didn't wanted to live as a king I think as he put it or something he wants to be the neighborhood king doesn't want to be the neighborhood donkey and so he holds off on that for a long time it's yeah he's in a pretty precarious narrative spot for sure my big prediction is kind of about him also mine is basically that I think this novel ends with Harry and Raza as the main characters I don't think it's clear that this feels like a narrative handoff to me, the reintroduction of Harry to the narrative. We actually never met him in India. <laughs> He's only alluded to. And so I do right. think that it's going to end with the narrative being handed off to those two and see how the legacy of their parents, the people they were, the influences they had in their lives. They obviously, they're both parent um, sons of kind of mixed identity people who were dislocated and didn't know who they belonged to or what allegiances they had so handing it off to those two at the end for the final part of the story it feels in line with the ambition of this book at this point, it Mm -hmm. feels right thematically I did, I'm going to read exactly what I typed, I said um, in the document, let's say that Raza and Harry end up in some kind of intercontinental conflict, surely it wouldn't be something as obvious as terrorist CIA, right? But I imagine that their connection (laughs) will lead to the climax of this novel, so... And I swear to you, I typed that up nice. before you know that, you know, I mean, you know, I'm not lying. I literally typed that up before we talked about this and before I knew yeah. that it obviously you'd studied this in, with the terrorist lens. And I get, I didn't mean that it maybe to sound quite as negative. I just, the book is clearly heading toward American since he's, you know, working for the American government now there, it, <clears> it <throat> could go that route. And I know that the book ends in Afghanistan too. And so maybe knowing that hit my brain, sort of thinking, well, if, you know, if, if Raza lines and somehow ends up in Afghanistan and hair 2000s, I mean, you can basically see where it's going from there. And so, yeah, yeah, I don't even think that would be the wrong narrative decision. I guess I didn't mean that to sound as harsh, <laughs> but I guess I just it, when I wrote that prediction down, I just thought, oh, no, this this novel will find some other thematic thing. But now that I say it out loud, it feels right that the book would explore that. It mm-hmm. feels like the right idea.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. 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 So that was my official written prediction. We'll see. And, and I, my big narrative one, again, is just going to be that Hiroko and, and um, Sajad don't survive to the end of this book. And I think they've been wo- so well made, that would be, that would make me a little sad. But I think it's so confidently written that I'm not really worried if, like, Hiroko is, you know, if she makes a um, farewell to the kind of disappears from the novel before it ends. So, Any other thoughts on Burnt Shadows by Camilla Shamsi?
1: Um, nope, I'm just, I'm loving every moment.
0: Yeah. It's been such an enjoyable read. And I think maybe my reaction that I talked about in the make it stop section is I do think it's a book. I sometimes like to read books with music in the background or I'll leave something on. And I just don't think it's just challenging enough to not have that be the right move Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I need to give it full, full attention and, and really dig into the details and be careful with my reading. And I think maybe I was just rushing at times too, but it I don't know. It's also so smooth, like I said, that it kind of, you can almost feel like you can do that. It, it lures you in sometimes to think like, yeah, this is a pretty easy reading thing, but it obviously has so much going on and the writing can be, it has little pockets where it's really intricate and you have to, yeah, give it full kind of literary brain attention.
1: Mm-hmm. Cool.
0: And no other final thoughts on it so far?
1: Um. Nope.
0: Okay, excellent. Yeah, it's been enjoyable. Um, if you enjoyed this episode too, listeners, we'll have part two of the book club up next Friday. We post our book clubs on every Friday, except for when I forget to post, like I did last week. So sometimes a Sunday, because I'm going to have to go after this and post the episode I forgot to post on Friday. So my bad. Anyway, that's a behind the scenes talk. If you didn't enjoy this book or aren't reading it for whatever reason, we do have other books coming up in order that we'll tell you about here briefly. So after next Friday, which again will be Burnt Shadows part two, we'll be covering the novel True Grit by Charles Portis followed by Homegoing by Yag Yassi and then They Both Die at the End by Adam Silvera and i think those are all novels right
1: um i think so and i think actually it's pronounced Ya Ya yeah, yeah, Jesse is what i Je- Jesse yeah
0: Excellent. Spelled G-Y-A-S-I. You should never trust my pronunciation of anything, (laughs) even just common English words. Who (laughs) who knows? (laughs) Even those, not to be trusted. Anyway, yeah, those are all novels, I believe. So we are well and truly back on our literary preference, I think. We we dove into some nonfiction (laughs) for as much as we could stomach and had a good time doing it. But anyway, we are back in the novel studies now heavily. So look forward to those. And as always, we'll see you between the pages.